modern web development tools have given front-end developers more power. On the front-end, JavaScript frameworks like React and Vue have become easier to work with. For deployment, tools like Netlify and Zeit give developers a workflow that is tightly integrated with GitHub. At the database layer, auto-scaling document storage systems like Firebase and hosted Mongo solutions make it easier to work with objects. There are also a multitude of APIs that give developers a rich business functionality out of the box, making it easy to build applications around SMS, payments, and computer vision. If you're building a new application today, you have the option to build around a completely serverless architecture. As the backend and frontend have changed, the middleware to communicate between those layers has also evolved. GraphQL is a modern way of fetching data from disparate data sources. In previous episodes, we have talked about how GraphQL works and some common patterns for using GraphQL in mature applications. In today's episode, Tanmay Gopal joins the show to describe how to use GraphQL in newer applications. Tanmay is the CEO of Hasura, a company building tools around GraphQL. He discusses the advantages of using serverless functions together with GraphQL and how to architect an event-based serverless application. We have a few events coming up. We have a meetup of Software Engineering Daily at Cloudflare on the 3rd of April. Haseeb Qureshi will be sitting down for a conversation with me, and you can sign up for that event by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. Also, the company I'm working on called Find Collabs is having a $5,000 hackathon, you can join that hackathon by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. We're having both a virtual hackathon, which anybody can come to, and also an in-person hackathon on April 6th at App Academy. And we're going to be getting together at App Academy. We're going to be having some food. We're going to be hacking on some cool projects. So if you are looking for collaborators for your projects, check out Find Collabs, and you can enter to win that $5,000 prize purse. Thanks for listening, and let's get on with the episode. Tom Gopal, you are the CEO of Hasura. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Hi, everyone. It's great to have you here, and I want to talk about GraphQL as well as some other trends in web development that surround GraphQL. Let's start there. What are the trends in modern web development that are driving people towards using GraphQL? I think there are a bunch. So in in order of power, perhaps, the most powerful trend is that a lot of work has shifted towards the front end. So front-end developers are kind of like becoming the new kingmakers or the of, of a business, right? And the experience of consuming APIs so far has been terrible for front-end developers. And, and with GraphQL, suddenly the experience becomes really nice. And that's kind of one of the major drivers for, for GraphQL. So just as an analogy that I sometimes like to think about is when, when we were looking at the transition from SOAP to REST a while back, why did we move from soap to rest right it was not a technical limit it was not a technical limitation it was that the kind of development was changing where the new kind of work that a business was doing was not just kind of building code that would talk between a bunch of modules kind of within an org right it was becoming this kind of thing where human beings were integrating apis that were written by other people in building their own api and when when humans were looking at apis um, looking at like these restful json apis just made things so much easier as compared to looking at these xml apis and that was one driving force behind kind of switching over to rest and to json and similarly today when a lot of that work is shifting to the front end the experience of just using rest json apis making multiple api calls etc cetera, etc cetera, a bunch of problems there is just terribly painful and replacing that with graphql is is amazing so that's kind of one big reason the other big reason is the other kind of trend that is driving people to graphql is that graphql brings in a certain element of typing to your api 
And this is, again, a common thing when kind of systems end up becoming more complicated, right? You go away from it being like rapid prototyping and hacking things together into something that is better typed so that you know the type of what you're going to get when you make an API call. When you make an API call with on a REST API, the REST API can return anything. It is just the kindness of the API developer that they ensure that it returns what the documentation says it did. But a GraphQL server technically by spec will only return you data that you kind of requested for in the shape that you requested for, which means that there is kind of a type to it even at build time for both the server and the client. So these are kind of the two large trends that are kind of driving people to use GraphQL. The first trend where it's easier to use as an API is definitely the more powerful one. How does application architecture change when an app is built around GraphQL instead of the more traditional REST model? Yep. I think that's an emerging question. I mean, that, I mean, the, sorry, the, the answer to that is still kind of evolving. There are different ways of thinking about this. And from, from, I can speak a little bit from experience from what I'm seeing. One of the, so there are three kind of broad approaches, right? The first approach is that is what Facebook had, which is that, Hey, we have this monolith. This is a very cool monolith and it's a very large monolith. It's very complicated. And we have one API layer and this API layer is going to be natively GraphQL. So instead of exposing restish, restish APIs, they expose GraphQL APIs, right? And and this happens in their kind of in their in their monolith. This is nice, and GraphQL really kind of, if you look at it, was designed for the monolith because when you build the GraphQL server, there is a whole type system to the GraphQL API. This makes it very convenient to work with a monolith because with a monolith, what you can do is as a, as a you know if if 20 developers are kind of working together and they're all building a GraphQL schema, like they're building the GraphQL types of their API. You know, if there is a clash somewhere, it will conflict at a code level, they'll fix it. It's easier to deal with in a monolith, right? It's not delegated out. You have everybody kind of building their own types, then ultimately the GraphQL types will conflict. It's not one endpoint. The idea of having one GraphQL endpoint, one set of types, works really well with a monolith. And that's the way Facebook designed it. Now, unfortunately, the rest of the world does not use monoliths, right? Because they find it really hard to scale ownership with mon- with monoliths. And so, so it's easier for an organization to kind of scale ownership with, for, with microservices. So when people have microservices, the approach to using GraphQL is a little different. And in fact, um, what people are doing also is not refactoring existing microservices because for them, these REST APIs already exist. So the approach that's kind of emerging there is to say, you know, let every team build a GraphQL wrapper. And so they wrap their REST API in a GraphQL API and every team kind of exposes a GraphQL API. And then what is also happening is that or instead of wrapping over a single service, you build a GraphQL server that wraps over multiple services. So kind of like a gateway. So instead of having a backend for frontend or instead of having like one REST API endpoint that then talks to 20 other REST services, you have a GraphQL kind of gateway that talks to other REST services. And that's kind of another emerging architecture. The third architecture, which we see with um, Hasura users and which I'm super excited about is this kind of using it with, with serverless, right? Which is this other trend that is also happening with, with modern web development and modern kind of like application development. And their kind of what is exciting to me is this idea of saying that you have a GraphQL API, you know, some parts of your, your GraphQL API can also be written inside serverless functions. And so you have these different serverless functions that expose different sections of your GraphQL API, and then you kind of stitch them all together with a, with a gateway. And so your teams or developers can kind of own these individual GraphQL resolvers or pieces of the GraphQL API that are then stitched together. And then the stitching process needs to be a little bit automated or has a has a process around it to ensure that you don't conflict. And that's your GraphQL API. But then what you do is to leverage kind of serverless even more and the benefit of serverless, what you do is instead of trying to put a lot of logic in this GraphQL API layer, which is what you typically do in an application, right? Whether whether GraphQL or REST, you, you have this thick middle layer. Instead of putting more logic there, what you do is that the GraphQL API, you know, talks to some kind of a stateful layer, like a database or an event system. And then what that does is that that has an eventing setup and that goes and triggers other serverless functions asynchronously that that run your business logic. So the app talks to a GraphQL API, GraphQL API 
talks to some kind of stateful layer, which then goes and triggers events. Events go and trigger other serverless functions and you know maybe set off a workflow, cascade a workflow, um, where there's a lot of business logic happening. And, and that's kind of one cycle. But if you think about this cycle, I mean, this is not unique to GraphQL, right? Like you could have done this with the REST APIs also. And the cool thing with this is that a lot of your business logic can run asynchronously. But the problem with this architecture historically, you know, if you did not use GraphQL, was always that when stuff happened asynchronously on the backend. So let's say, you know, you you started off a process to asynchronously run a machine learning algorithm to do something. You know, maybe you inserted some text in the database and now you want to automatically translate that text, which is a long running process. And that runs off as a serverless function. That's perfect fit for serverless, perfect fit for eventing. Everything is great. But when the translated text arrives back into your into your state, how does the front end know that the translation work is done, that the file upload is done, that the Google Maps kind of translation of the address into lat long is done, right? These are like asynchronous tasks that happen. How does the front end know that this is done? And this is where GraphQL shines because your GraphQL API can actually be a real-time API, which means that you can subscribe to events as they happen on, on your stateful layer, on your database or wherever, and the front end can actually consume those changes as they happen over GraphQL subscriptions. And so to kind of complete this complex loop, the idea is the app goes to a GraphQL API, GraphQL API does some stuff, talks to the state, state triggers events, goes to serverless functions, um, serverless functions may modify state again on the backend, and backend state modifications are asynchronously consumed by the front end app. And this is a really cool architecture that is becoming increasingly popular with the with the kind of more modern developers where they are they're willing to kind of move almost everything to like a 100% serverless stack right they don't want to invest in writing monoliths or use like traditional frameworks and stuff like that does that make sense absolutely i share your excitement around the changes in architecture and to make it more concrete how this would work I think we should walk through another example. So let's say I'm building a mobile app today. Let's say I want to build SE Daily Instagram. So it's like Instagram, but you can only take pictures of computers. And if you try to upload a, a picture that is not of a computer, you get your photo rejected. How would I architect that application? So in this kind of like super modern way of doing things, right? What you would do is your app would do a streaming upload to a file service, something like S3. And this is a really, I really like this question because this hits upon one of those weaknesses of GraphQL where GraphQL does not have a binary streaming spec built into GraphQL. So for binary data, uploading and downloading, you typically use traditional kind of APIs, restish APIs. You don't actually use GraphQL. But so in this in this architecture, what you would have is, and, and in this kind of like real-time GraphQL server SE event-driven stack, right? What you would do is you would have your app, and this is the SE Daily Instagram. And then this app now needs to kind of, you know, upload a post, right? Or create a post. So what you would do is you would create, you would run a GraphQL kind of mutation. You would go create a post, but this post is not marked as created. What the front end would also do is upload the file to S3, right? Or to some streaming upload, um, which is as fast as can be. When the upload finishes with S3, S3 will emit an event saying that the upload has been done. This event will be captured by a serverless function that says, oh, cool, the upload is done. And this is the metadata of the upload. And the metadata of the upload might contain like post information and a bunch of other things, right? This serverless function will then take this metadata, the URL of the file of S3, and put it in the database. And kind of and put that in like your primary database, you know, wherever you're storing posts and information about posts. The serverless function will put that information there. Once it's there in the database, you might emit one more event for a serverless function to go and compress that image. So you might want to thumbnail that image because the users uploaded this kind of gigantic 10 MB thing and you want to, you know, optimize that. Or maybe the app has a lot of work done inside the app and maybe the app is optimizing it, whatever. And so the serverless function on the back might go in and further compress this image and save that URL again with the same pattern, right? You go compress it, save it to S3, S3 event, come back and save the smaller compressed image in another field in the table. And you're kind of updating the table as stuff is happening, as these uploads happen. Meanwhile, what the app is doing is that the app is subscribing to the post ID to check whether everything is done 
with the post, right? Um, and this is if in case the user wants to see whether the post upload was done successfully or not, or the user can actually navigate away and you don't have to, the user doesn't have to wait for this upload to happen, the thumbnailing to happen. But in case you want to show that feedback to the user, the front-end app is also subscribing to that post object in the database. And as these fields come in, as the post URL comes in, as the compressed post URL kind of comes in, the app kind of gets this notification real time that, hey, okay, cool, post upload is done. Here's the image. Compression has been done or whatever. Here's the image. Or maybe that's too much detail and you don't want to show that to the user. So you don't have to show that to the user. So that's what it would look like. And the cool thing here is that this stack is scalable and kind of resilient, you know, out of the box. You can have 10,000 users and it won't matter because S3, which is a managed service for uploading files, will scale. These are emitting serverless functions, which are all completely independent of each other, right? It's not like an API server that you need to scale manually. That will keep scaling automatically. These are going and talking to a managed database, which might be RDS, which is a managed database, so which where you have like easy ways to scale that up and down the way you need to. And your GraphQL API layer, well, that's the piece that you really need to build. But that's also kind of becoming easier to build. Or if you're using a system like Hasura to, to take care of that for you, which is like a managed GraphQL API, well, then that's also super easy to build, right? That's also something that kind of scales automatically and you don't have to manage it. So that's kind of what's neat, right? You're, you're building a fairly complicated real-world backend that's doing a bunch of things, but everything kind of keeps working automatically. And it's very nice because the system, if you think about it, is kind of resilient out of the box, right? Imagine a file upload process, which is usually very hard to build if you're building your own API. If you have your own API, you're saving a file to disk or you're saving the file to S3. What if that upload crashes or fails, right? And you already have something on the database, you uploaded something to S3, but then something went wrong. How do you recover from this state where you might have some files in S3, but you don't know what their URLs are in the database, right? You're, you're in this confused state that you need to kind of make sure that you handle well. If your API restarts, you can go look at S3, find dangling files, either delete them or go update them again, the, again in the database. It's painful. But if you think about this event-driven thing, when S3 upload finishes, the event is emitted. Not before, not after, 100% guarantee given to you by like the vendors of these systems, right? So that means that if the mobile uploads the file, you will have the file. This can happen 10,000 times, this can happen zero times, this can happen 10 times, right? And it's extremely simple for me as a developer to not know backend things, concurrent things, multi-threading things. I just build stuff. I build my app, I build my serverless functions, I model my database, I use these services, that's it. So that's kind of what it what it looks like. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I agree that the benefits of this architecture are numerous and it makes it quite a good time to be a developer relative to five, ten years ago when a lot of this stuff was much, much harder to do. One theme in your explanation is the evented architecture. So for example, when a photo gets uploaded, we might consider that an event. When the photo gets saved to S3, we might consider that another event, and maybe we want to compress the photo or do some other manipulation to it. In any case, this this connection between the serverless world and the event-driven world is, we've explored that on previous episodes, how should this type of application be managing all these different events that are getting created and triggering other things throughout the system? Yep. You mean that that's a really, I mean, that is essentially the question in this, right? And I'm guessing that you mean like things like, how do you manage a workflow of events and stuff like that? Is that, is that, is that kind of what you're asking? Right. So, so there's, there's a number of things. So first of all, like when, a photo gets uploaded, there's going to be an event that's triggered. Where is that event getting triggered? Where is the processing taking place? And then is the event an abstraction that we need to put into a queue? And then if we, we have this, you know, like you said, with the workflows, if you have something like a banking application where you have uh, a transaction that you want to, uh, like a banking transaction, and first you want to make sure that the money is in the account, and then you want to make sure that the money transferred successfully to the other account, and then you want to make sure that, you know, both accounts are sane, and there was no kind of double spend issue. You know, you might have five or six different steps in a workflow. And if we're talking about building 
you know these applications from serverless functions then we start to get into state management but before we get to state management i, I guess I, I just i want to focus on this this question of events how do events get created where are the events getting managed do we need an event queue or is that somehow handled implicitly tell me about event management got it got it right so touches on a few things like you said right but the primary idea is that any stateful system that undergoes a change emits an event it is a responsibility of the stateful system to emit events right so in this case the stateful systems if you think about it in this in the se daily instagram app were s3 and was the database these were the only two stateful pieces s3 was having file get files getting uploaded and then the database was having references saved to those files or references saved to the thumbnailed version of the file so these are the two stateful systems so these two stateful systems must emit events and so aws for example and most of the cloud vendors now for all of the stateful abstractions that they give you they give you events so they give you events when things happen s3 file uploading file upload finished bucket created file created whatever right so they have a bunch of these events so that's one kind of source of events the first problem with eventing is kind of capturing events and the responsibility is on the stateful system to capture events atomically so the stateful system that you're looking at should have a 100% guarantee on event capture nothing should happen that should result in an event not being captured so so that is that is piece one the second piece is event delivery right so once this event is captured how is it delivered to your serverless function and how does that process become reliable and then actually coming to the next part of your question how is it idempotent how is it exactly once so that you can avoid double spend right and so for example again if you're looking at these managed state services for example s3 s3 emits an event and and there you have a guarantee an exactly once guarantee that this will call your serverless function exactly once right and this will happen exactly once right so you have that you have kind of that guarantee where you can take that s3 event and then directly use that to call your serverless function right you have another alternative where you can take this event and put it into a queue and like something like sqs your own queue kafka rabbitmq whatever you can ask aws to put it into a queue for you or you can manually put it into a queue by by taking that event and then just doing a simple thing where you just update the database and says or update it into a queue right this is useful for those situations where you think that your processing of the event might be failure prone so if the processing of the event is kind of like a pure function where you're guaranteed that there is no failure that will happen inside the serverless function because it's not dependent on any external kind of other services or api calls it's it's a pure kind of transformation and then update you can get away with it being called with it being called directly by your by your stateful system and you don't need a queue but in case you think that this might fail and you might want to retry it right maybe for example if you look at this image you might want to run a machine learning algorithm that extracts the people who are inside this image right uh, but when you run that machine learning algorithm and you call that api that is giving you the ml algorithm that api might have a rate limit so that means that you are not going to be able to process this once in one shot you might need to retry this again right because you're hitting a rate limit because of an external dependency and in those cases you want to take your events and put it into a queue and the queue should kind of give you this kind of retry mechanism on the database side you're looking at the same problem where when the database is kind of doing things you want events events should be captured and then delivered there are different ways of doing this at hasura we have an open source project which does uh, which does this which does the eventing on the database on on postgres today and eventually other databases where we capture kind of changes that are happening in postgres we store them in a temporary queue and then we do reliable delivery of these events that have been captured so you kind of deliver this to a serverless function there's a retry logic your serverless function can reply with the retry after so you can kind of implement this exponential back off and say oh i'm hitting a rate limit try again after 10 minutes i you try again after 10 minutes i'm hitting another rate limit try again after 20 minutes right so you can kind of implement that and the queue or the hasura kind of queue will take care of delivering this and making sure that it's delivered uh, you know at least once the double spend issue is a more complicated issue and there are there are a bunch of ways around this right one of the ways around this is by doing a transaction so whenever you are speaking to one stateful system you can leverage all the properties of that one stateful system so for example if your serverless function 
needs to do a transaction on a single instance database where you need to reduce amount from account one, do some checks, increase amount on account two, log this transaction, and then finish the transaction, right? This whole thing is one transaction happening with one data system, with one database that gives you the abstraction of a transaction, like a database, like RDS. It gives you a transaction. So from your serverless function, go ahead and run a transaction. It's absolutely fine. Just like you normally would have in code because the system allows you to do it. But in a more complicated case, you're looking at maybe you know reducing the amount from a particular user, sending it off to an external system, not knowing if it's processed for a long time, and that's a more complex scenario. In that complex scenario, the queue that is doing event delivery to you, the queue must give you exactly one semantics, right? Because the queue in 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 any kind of error case cannot afford to call your if cannot afford to deliver that same event multiple times. Um, and this is not just failure. This is because most queues that deliver events uh, give you exactly one semantics. And this is to protect against network failure. Because when you look at eventing, it's complicated. The, I, I might have sent the event over HTTP, but I never got the ACK back. But the event was delivered to you. You consumed it. But the 200 status that you responded with saying that, hey, I've got this event or whatever, or over the network, the event delivery mechanism didn't receive that. And so now it doesn't know whether you receive the event or not. So it sends you the event again, right? And then you process the event again for no fault of your own because there's a network in the middle, right? This is a common problem, but you have to implement like a two-phase commit kind of thing to solve this problem or other techniques. But your event system needs to give you exactly one semantics is one way around the problem. The other way around the problem is that when your serverless function is doing things, you make sure that your serverless function is idempotent. So that means that no matter how many times I run the serverless function for the same payload, it will not cause a repetition. It will not cause a double spend. The, the serverless function itself will can be retried like infinite times with the same event, and that will count as one spend, right? And these that's a little bit harder to build, uh, but again, the tooling is kind of getting uh, better. One of, the, one of the ideas that we've been playing around with is making API calls retry proof. So imagine that your function is calling an API call, but instead of making an API call directly to to whatever API, whether it's Stripe or you know ABC, whatever your API is, instead of doing that, you you make the API call through through another system, and this system actually saves your event payload, like your request payload, in a queue, dedupes them, and makes the API call only once. So even if you try making the API call again, you just get the previously saved response for that event, for that request payload. So as long as you have this kind of guarantee that your requests uniquely identifiable, this is not a problem. So there's st- there's active work happening in that area. There's cool things happening there. But that's kind of what the eventing scenario looks like. And the ecosystem is coming up with a bunch of tools. The cloud vendors are coming up with tools. People like us at Hasura are coming up with a bunch of tools to make this eventing more natural. Does that make sense? Definitely. One thing I find interesting about this architecture is... It's very new, and it seems really, really useful for applications just getting started or ones that want to scale, but we don't really have any large-scale case studies. So what, what I think will be interesting is the applications that are getting built today with this kind of architecture, when they become Uber scale or Twitter scale or Facebook scale, what are the architectural challenges they're going to encounter? Have you seen any any applications that have really hit scale with this kind of architecture? Do you have a sense for what kinds of problems emerge as an application like this scales up? So I honestly can't say that I have because I don't think they they exist quite yet. And so I think maybe nobody has. But 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 there are two interesting facets to this, I think. One is that in a lot of cases, you know, your entire application might not be hundred percent serverless, but you're adding these components on into your system, these kind of managed serverless components into your system, right? And that's happening and that's happening even at scale. And even at scale, a particular kind of workload, right? Like I talked about this translation example, which is which is asynchronous. You don't want to, you don't, or a thumbnailing example, right? These are ideal, like ideally done async because nobody cares about it happening synchronously. It's not important enough for that, but it's good to have it done eventually, right? So, and so that's a very common way to kind of use a little bit of serverless and eventing in your existing stack. But the event-driven system that I'm referring to, all of the companies that you see at scale 
they have implemented this kind of a system internally they cannot scale without having events if they have this one api that is synchronously dependent on other apis to do things like you know i have an api that talks to service 1 and then talks to service 2 and then talks to service 3 to do something and then service 3 fails oh shit i need to roll back service 2 i need to roll back service 1 but is there a roll back on an api call no right and so most most of these web scale companies their state management is actually evented right internally they've built a lot of that infrastructure to do that eventing which then internally goes captures that event puts it into a stateful event log and then you go process that event and do something else i mean the rise of kafka so many years ago a lot of that i mean eventually though it started off initially started off for logs has become kind of this event system or uh, this event bus in your org right so so eventing has been known and has been used as a very has been used as the method to solve problems at scale are those events then going and talking to serverless functions no i mean because serverless functions were around or a thing till very recently but your own implementation of like these stateless apis right your own implementation of these microservices and these different microservices and different teams connected to each other via event queues right that is the way of using microservices if you're using microservices where apis are directly dependent on each other that will stop scaling very fast i mean that will become a pain much faster than a monolith will become a pain when you start seeing network failures with your microservices you will be you will wonder you know why don't i just go back to my monolith where at least these stupid network failures didn't happen so the most common way of of solving that is by having your microservices talk to each other asynchronously via eventing and that's already been done and that's been that's happening for a long time every every single company at scale has eventing underneath to ensure kind of protection against like these arbitrary failures against transient failures to be able to scale easily to be able to retry things easily because if an event is captured in the event log you know that you can process this eventually right there might be a small like failure but you have the event just go replay the event everything will work so that's already happening so this is bringing serverless into the mix is just making that architecture accessible to everybody instead of you know instead of um, instead of like these large engineering teams building internal infrastructure at these web scale companies the vendors and other tooling vendors are kind of doing that for you so that you can leverage the benefits of eventing without the pain of setting up an eventing system um and so that you can leverage the 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 idea of writing these simple pure pureish kind of serverless functions that then act on these events and that's making this architecture kind of more accessible but this has actually been around for a long time so we've been talking about applications that manage to go in this direction from a greenfield and i want to talk some about adoption of graphql and the related set of technologies that we've been discussing i guess m- m- more focused on graphql because i think If you're a bank, for example, that's the kind of a non-greenfield application that I I typically is my go-to because there are lots of banks that are old but are still doing quite successful and are updating their architectures over time. But if I'm a bank and I'm adopting GraphQL and I'm perhaps adopting serverless or cloud technologies, but I think that's a little bit further off. If I'm adopting GraphQL, what is my adoption strategy? How does it compare to the greenfield strategy? it's a little bit more tedious i think i think yeah going going back to you know one of your first questions about graphql it's with a, with a greenfield you can afford to kind of build your own graphql api right you have a native graphql api there's only one layer in the system instead of a rest api it's a graphql api things are easier when you have an existing system the typical way of the the two ways of moving to graphql one is and this is the most popular method that's easy for people to reason about is that they take the rest apis they add another layer before the rest api you know this is frequently owned by maybe the backend team if the backend team is empathetic and cares about the frontend people or sometimes in a lot of cases it's the frontend team that actually takes up the ownership of saying we'll write our own graphql service on the back and this graphql service that's on the backend is stateless you know doesn't do much is deliberately thin on business logic is deliberately thin on on doing things that might make it hard to think about performance or scaling and this service actually just exposes a graphql api but internally delegates that to um, existing rest endpoints 
right? So the actual business logic, the work, the authentication, the security, as far as possible, is done by these upstream REST services, which have existing code in them. And you don't bother those backend developers, right? You don't, you let them work as they've been working in their own microservices, and you're completely independent of that. But what you do is instead of consuming those APIs in an app, you consume those APIs in a GraphQL service. And then this GraphQL service exposes an API to your app, right? This is a common migration method. It's not, it's not nice. Uh, it seems, it seems almost like this is a, a a step while we're transitioning, and maybe this is not the final step of what the world will look like when everybody's on GraphQL, because you're introducing another layer. One more layer is one more component to manage. One more component that can fail. One more network hop. One more thing to worry about when it comes to scaling your system up. And um, and that's a common problem. But if you look at a lot of legacy systems that were on SOAP that wanted REST and the SOAP developers didn't want to change, you added a REST interface on top, right? Like a REST layer on top of it as an external service. And that, was, that used to be very common. Sometimes still is. So that's kind of one method. The other method that we see with Hasura users because of what the Hasura product does, like you basically look at, you, you take a database and you expose a GraphQL API automatically on top of that database. Um, and you have these kind of access control semantics to control how your GraphQL API does security or does application security and exposes the underlying database models, right? Whether you want to tweak them a little bit, you want to change the names, you want to do a little bit of restructuring on this GraphQL API that you expose, which is automatically real-time and does all the hard things about performance and, and has a bunch of all of that work done, right? And so very commonly, we've seen that our users have existing databases. They run their existing logic on these REST APIs but they read from the GraphQL layer. So read, because GraphQL is optimized for reads like nothing else, and it's mostly a read problem that GraphQL solves really well. That ends up being a good intermediate path to say, I have this high-performance GraphQL read layer that I can use from my app. And for writes, I can continue using the existing APIs. I can even wrap them in uh, in, a, in, a GraphQL, in GraphQL mutations and then stitch that together with the, with the read API, right? And so... So my GraphQL mutations will go to REST so will go to REST APIs, which will go and modify state. And if I want to read stuff or subscribe to stuff or have real-time stuff, then I'm going to use this auto-generated GraphQL layer that is secure that I can talk to. So we're seeing that is also a common kind of extension to existing applications that we're seeing. But but these are kind of the two broad the two broad approaches. So you are building a company around GraphQL. In thinking about these two kinds of application developer types, you know, you've got greenfield applications and applications that have been around for a while. Do you have a sense for where the market is for building a business around GraphQL? I think it's it's early to say. I think all of the companies that are kind of in the GraphQL space are are actively like trying to figure this out. I think there are a bunch of different ways to think about this, just like any other business, right? Like building a business around um, Rest, for example. What were the businesses that people built around Rest? And that has a good, you know, whatever problems they solved there, that has a good analog for what you could theoretically build a business around when it comes to GraphQL, right? So you had, uh, with if you think about just Rest itself, right, with all of the stuff around API management and API security and um, API collaboration, right? There's a lot of, there's so much, there's so much stuff that was happening there, which have, which have resulted in large businesses, right? Performance, monitoring, analytics, collaboration, uh, tooling. And a lot of that can potentially come into the GraphQL world where, you know, the, the people who are moving to GraphQL will need these systems to, to help them deal with GraphQL, right? Or deal with GraphQL APIs. So there's definitely an opportunity of that kind. I think it's hard to build businesses on that help you build GraphQL APIs, which are like frameworks. Developer frameworks are not a good business because, I mean, they should be open source. Um, and, and I think if you look back over the last maybe decade or two, cases of being able to monetize a successful framework, or successfully monetizing a framework, even if the framework is wildly successful, has been quite hard. Right, so being able to monetize that is is not is not easy, and yeah, that's in fact for the meteor folks uh, who are now doing a lot of the Apollo work, who are, who've kind of championed the accessibility of GraphQL. You know, were doing or are, are, are still do, and and that's that's been hard, right? That is hard, uh, or at least that's what it seems like on the outside. I'm I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the internal details are. So um, on that front, enabling GraphQL or solving very specific problems 
but that that use graphql as that uh, that exploit or kind of bring off the value of graphql i think there are opportunities there i mean honestly this was surprising for our team as well uh, when we open sourced asura you know 7 8 months ago um and we kind of launched it we expected most of our users to be building greenfield applications right like building new applications because you know you put a tool like this out it becomes very common that that gives you a graphql api that's real time it's most common for people who are kind of building new things to use this and and of course that's a huge chunk of our user base but but within this short amount of time we've seen a fairly large number of enterprise use cases running this in production where they are basically using hasura to modernize their legacy database they have an existing database there's data inside it nobody wants to use the existing apis to to deal with that and so they just kind of throw this layer it's super high performance tiny footprint but it's optimized just for t- solving this kind of tiny use case around being able to read write and do real time stuff really fast and really well and and so they kind of just use this layer and they get a graphql api and um and the real benefit to that is that the front end teams get are freed up and can work faster right so in a sense it's a business built around graphql because because we're exposing graphql apis but in a sense it's built around like you know maybe another kind of business that you would have seen analogs with before where it's just speeding up stuff and automating automating components that you don't have to maintain anymore right which is fairly common in enterprise technology right you have a bunch of these components that that you don't build that you don't maintain that do it for you and and so that's the opportunity that we are exploring but uh, but i'm sure there'll be kind of lots more as um as the graphql ecosystem opens up as adoption widens and as a lot of the early adopters today are people who can build their own stuff build their own infrastructure build their own tools do their own thing but the world a few years later will be a lot of people will want to use graphql but they don't want to invest the resources in building the infrastructure surrounding graphql and that's where a lot of businesses will probably emerge just like what we saw with the rest world but i mean just to be clear there's no there's no today if you think about there's no rest business right there's no business which was that company monetized rest that's a little bit hard to say and i think the same thing will happen with graphql or should happen with graphql because it's an open spec and so many years later people will look back at it and say this was the graphql company i don't think people will say this was the graphql company i think people will say this is amazing i mean graphql is amazing and these are like the these are the products and the different businesses in the graphql space that help you get productive with graphql and and that's kind of what should happen and what i think will happen now that i have some perspective on your vision for how the business might unfold let's talk about what you're actually working on so describe what hasura does what the product offers right now or i guess i should say the open source pro- project and your vision for turning that into a business so the open source project i mean i think the the way we think about it is you know bhedi has a there's a there's the open source project that we have and then there's the business that we build around the open source project which is hard on a good day <laughs> but the open source project today uh, what it does is we do we we call ourselves a real time graphql engine and uh, a serverless eventing engine right so what we do is you point us to database this might be a new database or an existing database and we look at the database and generate a graphql api for you we give you semantics to i mean we give you a rule engine to configure application security to say if a user has a rule called user a rule called editor a rule called collaborator they can access this data if id is equal to their session id or id is equal to the cookie session id wherever the authentication system is coming from so you set up this kind of access control you get this graphql api and we solve the two hard problems with graphql one giving you good performance because with graphql what happens is that you can make a arbitrary query and this might absolutely like destroy your database it's called the it's like the n plus 1 query problem where where your graphql api will end up making multiple calls to the database um and so we solve that problem by taking a very unique approach of of compiling we compile a graphql query into a single sql query we inject kind of like these um the right access control things and we compile that to a single query so you query for user and addresses we'll compile that to a select star from user comma addresses where id equal to whatever where the access controls are right and then we we do that kind of in one one query which is what you would have done you know if a backend developer was writing this and wanted to give you an efficient api the second problem is real time and and so we listen to changes on the database and every time there's a change 
we refresh uh, we refresh the subscription that you have and then you get the latest result on the client right so on the client it's kind of no nonsense super easy real time and we've done the hard work on the back end to make sure that it's scalable that it doesn't um, destroy the database when you start subscribing to changes to the database so that's what the open source project does when we launched this like 7 months ago that's what it did we added support for eventing soon after because that's kind of what we were seeing with our users so now whenever something changes in the database we also call out to serverless functions or webhooks on the back end you know this has nothing to do with subscriptions anymore uh, so that you can go and run asynchronous you know logic and, and that's kind of what the project did but now when we we think about the business what we really want to do is and and the way we think about our role in the ecosystem is what we want to do is we want to make all of the data that you have in your in your organization and in your team we want to make that as accessible and as easy to consume as possible for the next generation of modern web developers right so people who are building these rich applications on react and angular and vue we want to make your data your existing data your existing apis databases all of that we want to make that accessible as as quickly as possible to these to these modern web developers so that they can get productive quickly and these modern developers not only are they using graphql on the front end but they're going to be writing their business logic in serverless functions and so we need to make data accessible to these to these users who are building inside serverless functions as well and so um and and that's kind of where that our eventing piece comes in to say that th- this is how we this is how we expose your data safely to the stakeholders who are kind of building the next generation of technology and web experiences for you um and that's really our role where we're kind of making data more accessible um for for graphql and serverless so so that's kind of where we where we think about like the the business value that we're unlocking and we we do that with graphql and serverless today and today just just postgres but eventually with with other databases and and with more you know with different kind of api sources and stuff like that we started off the conversation talking about this SE daily Instagram app type and you know what's interesting to me is I really like building new applications and I really like the the ease of use that modern software development offers especially relative to like when I started getting involved in software like 10 or 12 years ago when it was not as trivial as it is today to spin up your own application fairly cheaply and easily. Well, at least one layer that I think there's a lot of I guess subjectivity in right now is which backend as a service to choose. So if I'm architecting one of these one of these projects, you know, I could do it entirely on S3, I could do it across AWS, but you also have these these rich backend as a service tools. You like you have Zeit, Netlify, Firebase, Heroku. And for a developer that's playing in this world, I think they're looking closely at these different backend as a service products. How should a developer evaluate these different backend as a service products? Do you have a sense for how they compare in in your mind yeah that's a very good question and that's something that we've thought about deeply as well i think the the backend as a service landscape has shifted a little bit from being more parse and firebase like which was kind of like a all or nothing to more zite and netlify like which is they solve tiny and more specific problems right and more kind of more platformish than the actual api so so that's kind of what's happening and i think the way we think about when we build our systems and we try to leverage as much of like the serverless stuff as possible when we set up our internal infrastructure and what not the heuristics that we have are whatever code we write the local development workflow the ci cd and where we deploy it should be vendor agnostic right the code that i'm writing should not depend on should not be written in a way that can only be run on aws even though aws has a specific format to way the serverless function runs right because it's very easy to kind of just do this wrapping to that is common tooling across your entire team so that whenever you're writing stuff it's not it's not something that can only be deployed to AWS or to Zite or to Netlify or to wherever and so that's ensuring that is important whatever backend systems that you're using should either have APIs that are replaceable or the component itself is open source so that means that you're either using like a postgres like database which is open source where you have this guarantee that I'm not locked into RDS I'm not locked into I'm not even locked into Postgres because it's open source right Postgres community has so much tooling that you can use to kind of migrate into and from a Postgres database so having these infrastructure components being open source is 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 very good uh the good thing with stuff like S3 
which is one of these other gigantic components in your stack, right? The great thing with S3 is that S3 has become kind of like a standard API. So it now doesn't matter if only AWS has S3 because almost all of the cloud vendors have a S3 compatible API. And then there are companies like Minio or, or Min.io where they're basically saying, hey, on your own storage inside enterprise or on cloud or wherever, you can run Minio and that will do the storage for you. But it will still give you an S3 compatible API. So I think as long as the APIs that you're using are either replaceable or the infrastructure components themselves are open source and have a community around it, you're fine. You don't have to be too worried about what choice you make because you can probably switch from one to the other fairly easily. At that point, the decision becomes more about, you know, what cloud vendor do you prefer because of because of other reasons. But that's the way I think about it. Okay. Well, it's been really fun talking to you. Do you have any other predictions for what the next five years looks like for the world of GraphQL? What's going to change? What's going to improve? I think the experience around using uh, GraphQL and kind of consuming GraphQL and using GraphQL APIs is definitely going to become better and more accessible. That's that's going to happen. The tooling to kind of build your own GraphQL systems should also gradually become easier. And we'll see kind of different patterns around GraphQL. I think one of the other things that we'll see is that uh, the, the use cases for GraphQL will evolve significantly. Right now, it, it it's kind of been born in this fairly specific use case, you know, the way Facebook had it. Um, it's now gradually making its way to the rest of the world. And and people have already started to use it in very interesting ways where they use GraphQL as a data source for doing things. So Gla- GraphQL is becoming a declarative data source for creating static sites. And that's an approach that, you know, Gatsby is taking. We just released an open source tool that uses GraphQL as a data source for building charts, for doing data visualization, right? So instead of thinking about a chart, the data for that chart, you, you specify that as a GraphQL query, uh, which is declarative, and then the chart just gets generated, right? So there's there's going to be that approach where GraphQL becomes a data source kind of language, and then you have a lot of automated tooling once you, the data source is kind of specified. Um, and that is, there's going to be a lot of tooling around that because the productivity benefit of that is is insane. You specify a GraphQL data source, stuff magically happens, right? Um, and not just this kind of API use case where I make the API call, I get data. So that's going to happen. But I would be wary of saying anything anything more than that because I think the ecosystem is still is rapidly evolving. Okay, well, Tanmay, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Wow.